Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, welcome back to the Rugby League Digest, part three of A Time for Heroes, our in-depth look at season 1994, the calm before the storm. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? <laughs> I'm good, how are you? <laughs> good, so we, we spent the last episode going through the squads of Canberra and Canterbury, the grand finalists for 1994, uh, the loaded squads, especially of the Green Machine. This week, we're going to be looking at the regular season fortunes of each team, as well as have a look at how the semi-finals progressed. There's some good teams in that year. If, you know, looking back over the notes, I was surprised, you know, teams like Norths and that sort of thing. It was cool. Yeah, so I got some Norths content at the back end of the show, which uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the, the Norths fans we have will be happy about that. They don't get much of a guarantee these days. <laughs> Shout out to Flo. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's start with Canterbury, minor premiers for 1994. Uh, that was back-to-back minor premiers doing the 1993 as well. Uh, in 1994, they really announced themselves early by beating Canberra 17 to 12 early in the season, uh, courtesy of a Terry Lamb masterclass. And at that point, when he was still healthy, all the usual talk came out about Canterbury being a one-man band and or as close to a one-man show as existed in the Premiership at that time. So they really had a point to prove when he did go down and, and spent much of the season injured. Uh, we talked about the emergence of a few players. In that squad, one we missed last time was Matthew Ryan, who went on a real run mid-season and was even talked about in origin terms. He was a really good player. It's so funny. Like, I I know the name. I have a picture of him in my head, but I, I've got, like, no memory of him as a player. But there's so many guys called Ryan and, yeah. and Bell, mm. and, like, they sort of mix into one. Like In that era, there's there seemed to be, like a, like, a half a dozen of each of those names. Yeah. But he was a really good player. Yeah, and his name w- was mentioned strongly in origin calculations. And it made it plausible for Chris Anderson to say that Darren Smith was being left out of the team on form ground, saying that Darren Smith didn't give them the strike power out wide that Matthew Ryan did. Yeah, I mean, uh, plausible deniability, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> so he he missed Origin, but he did. He actually played uh, in the Super League tri-series for New South Wales, which I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. Yeah, so he had, had a fair run there. Uh, the the other big news for Canterbury that year was a partial move to Concord Oval. They played three or four games there, uh, so called Waratah Park. That was a harbinger of things to come for the for the game in Sydney. Yeah, so uh, obviously they ended up going to Parramatta Oval the next year when they changed their name to the Sydney Bulldogs. Uh, I think they might have even still played some games at Concord. But <laughs> remember when they? I don't know if you remember your age, but when, when they changed the name to the Sydney Bulldogs, that was just like. There were shockwaves. Oh, yeah. Just the, the audacity. You know, like, you know, there's a few other clubs in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> but my my, uh, my stepdad at the time was a Balmain fan. And when Balmain changed their name to the Sydney Tigers, he was like, that's it. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm never watching them again. And 
Little did he know that. <laughs> <laughs> With rugby league fans, like the smallest thing can can get a life ban. Yeah, <laughs> a minor name change. That's it. <laughs> but we, we'll we'll have some in depth discussion about those name changes and those uh, moves away from the suburban grounds as we get into the Super League season proper. So we might halt that there. And another another little moment in. In Canterbury's season, I wanted to point out was uh, some sledging in Canterbury's win over Manly, which uh, really announced them as quotation marks the real deal. <laughs> uh, and two two Manly players earned the ire of one Martin Bella, Terry Hill, no surprises, <laughs> and and Mark Carroll. So Bella had this to say of Hill and Carroll's efforts: the sledging that was directed at me by Hill and Carroll for the entire game was unbelievable, and I haven't experienced anything like it in my career. I'm not going to bring myself down to their level and repeat what was said, but let's say it's not something I'm going to forget. They thought it was all a joke and that it was just something that could be left on the field. Unfortunately, I feel too strongly about the issue and can't do that. I haven't a scrap of respect for either Hill or Carroll. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, he, he went on to, to say that he knows he's, he's not the most popular bloke in the game. Uh, he said, I admit I'm not liked by everyone, and I know that. I like to judge people as I find them, not how I'm told to find them. And that has probably got me offside with a few people. Personally, I don't give a damn. I, I really like Martin Bella. He's got his intellect. Yeah. Very rugby player. And um, obviously, with, if it's between Terry Hill and Martin Bella, that's <laughs> side I'm on. <laughs> but yeah, he has to realize rugby league is not just one big foot rot flats episode. <laughs> you know. But so that was in the midst of a long uh, winning run for Canterbury. They had a streak of nine wins at one stage in the season. But looking at, at their week to week, you could you could see signs that it was that they weren't as impressive as that record showed. They were like struggling to get by against weak teams. Late in the season, Canberra actually demolished them. Like to quote a local golfer, you don't have to draw pictures, mate. Two points is two points. Yeah, exactly. But when you have one team steamrolling their way to the semis and the the minor premiers kind of limping over the line. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. Am I imagining this or was it the era of a lot more longer winning streaks, mid-90s? I think with the salary cap, you get like a, a dud team can can jag one back after four or five losses generally, mm. like a Titans or whatever. Yeah. But in those days, you could have like a 14-game winning yeah, streak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right about that. I, I don't have the stats to back it up. But you know who does have the stats? One Andrew Ferguson from the Rugby League Project. Who we, we've lent on heavily for this episode. <laughs> so Andrew Ferguson's uh, stats. What, what was the, the name I suggested? Fergo Stats Shack? I don't know. I'm working on the name. But anyway, so... I think drawing board for that one, mate. But, <laughs> but yeah, so so we, we will get to that later in the show. But uh, So Canterbury, even though they were minor premiers, they were limping towards the line by the end. Uh, on the other side of the ball, Canberra, who lost uh, one, one or two more games than Canterbury over the course of the year, were by far and away the most impressive team throughout the regular season. So there's a few things to get to with Canberra's season. One thing I wanted to start with was a bit of foreshadowing. I'm just going to read this to you. This was in the wake of their 46-16 win over South Sydney in March. Veteran prop Paul Osborne, entering his 10th season of grade football, emerged as the new Bruce Stadium crowd favourite in the Canberra Raiders' emphatic victory. Spurred on by rousing cheers, he was a key contributor as the Raiders trampled over Souths. Yeah, well. So, love the Aussie. Yeah, so obviously there's there's a lot of Aussie content in our next episode where we look at the grand final. There's obviously a lot of uh, content in the episode where we look at self-serve checkouts. 
<laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll save all that. Um, but one, one thing that stood out to me about Canberra's season is, and I don't, I don't think even Andrew Ferguson will be able to get these stats for us, but I wonder if any team has ever had more length of the field tries in a season than Canberra. Amazing. Uh, so all, almost every game you, you're seeing, you know, some match report with a variation of this. Canberra led 22-10 at halftime, but each time Illawarra looked like making a challenge, Canberra shifted into a higher gear. An 85-metre runaway try to exciting winger Ken Nagus being a case in point. Almost every game, whether it's Nagus or Mullins, Nandruku, you're getting some like long-range try out of nowhere. Well, let me ask you this. Take Brett Mullins and Nagus and Nandruku and Canberra's back line out of this year of 94. Is it even like an outstanding season? Like that is the centrepiece of the season. Mm-hmm. Like the four tries, the, the yeah. three tries, and I think five tries in one game. It really is. It's it's that era. So when you think of '94, you're basically thinking of Brett Mullins, right? Yeah, but but again, Nagus especially was was just as impressive. Uh, in one game against St George, he scored two length of the field tries. Incredible athlete. But that Mullins run, so that came in the midst of a five game streak of Canberra winning by at least thirty points. The three games where he scored is eleven tries. Cronulla, I remember watching it on ABC Football. Yeah. You can want to have a go at the score of that one? A lot. <laughs> so it was Cronulla 56 to 12, <laughs> then South 48 to 8, then Newcastle 52 16. She was. Uh, so, yeah, so 11 tries in those three games. Well, do you remember on our last incarnation of the RLD, the week to week show, we were talking about the Hain run in the Hall of Fame discussion? The famed 2009 Hain run. Mm. That, that was the next feeling after the Brett Mullins run. Those two are in the same class. That's three games, and Haynes did it for longer. But mm. uh, when you were just thinking for the whole week, man, can't wait for the weekend. It's going to be an absolute massacre. Well, well, let's talk about that because you were there at the third of those games in Newcastle. Four tries, two length of the fields. Uh, one of those length of the fields, I, I think, is probably on the you know the first thing on his epitaph. You know, yeah. Well, I I, I don't remember the the South one too much. I remember vividly watching the Cronulla game with my nan at her little fibro house in Toronto West and uh, just jumping up and down and loving it and going, how good is this? And then I was obviously there reeling from the Ricky Stewart snub, but then coming back to, to, to cheer on the, the boys. Mm. So what was the what was the vibe in, in the stadium? Obviously, like heavy loss for Newcastle. But... Yeah, but honestly, Knights fans are good in a respect good football and yeah, it was electric. People, people knew they were in the presence of greatness. Mm. Bit of a, uh, a wanky way to put it, but they, but they actually did. So in the midst of... It, it was a season of streaks, and one of those streaks was Canberra going through the, the season at home undefeated. Uh, and, you know... Was it a fortress at uh, <laughs> An absolute fortress, because that their run effectively lasted for two seasons, from March 93 until May 95. They didn't have a loss at home. I also feel like today that the home ground advantage is dissipated. Yeah. Probably because no one plays at the home yeah. ground. <laughs> but um, back then, like uh, especially out of town teams, you, you, if you lost at home, it was a major deal. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that that's definitely something that's changed. And, and even now, like doing my footy tipping, I get caught up in that. I'm like, you know, oh, winning at Canberra on a Saturday <laughs> night, that, that's a tough ask. You know, and then the team comes in and wins by 30. You know? <laughs> but so since 1991... Camera, until early 1994, they had a record of over 82% at Bruce Stadium. That's amazing. Uh, in, in some pretty esteemed company, not too many 
home undefeated seasons in rugby league history. Uh, so since they did it in 1994, Manly went on to do it in 96. Brisbane, Fortress Brookvale. Fortress Brookvale. Uh, interestingly, Manly had a nice little record uh, going undefeated away in 1995, undefeated at home in 1996. Amazing. Uh, and then, so yeah, so Brisbane did it in 97 and 2000 and Melbourne, the last team in 2007 to have a home undefeated season. We're going to get to 97 in Brisbane, obviously, mm. down the track in the series, but that's uh, probably the only thing close to the 94 Raiders. Well, I, I don't know, Andrew. I, I, I missed that one, so I'll, I'll have to catch up when we get to 97. <laughs> but certainly that 98 and 2000, those Broncos sides were like, th- there was never any doubt they were winning the comp those years. Yeah. So you actually boycotted the grand final. I think I might have actually watched the grand final because I remember my my dad and my uncle, it was a Saturday night, right, the grand final. Yeah. I remember they were tuning in. My my uncle was over and I was turned my face away from the TV and I remember my uncle going like, just watch it. <laughs> and so I can't remember if I actually did or if I stuck to my guns. Your uncle's like, this melodramatic fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was a... Highly successful season for Canberra in terms of their attack, uh, leading to talk of them as being one of the great attacking sides. So they set the tries record, uh, but it, it should be said that the East team of 1935 remained the benchmark for attacking sides. Uh, so Canberra scored their tries at a rate of 5.6 a game, uh, 5.8 if you take out the semis. Dave Brown got 7.4. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So East in 1935 was scoring at 7.7 tries a game. Uh, and I, I should say, we'll do our shout-out to Andrew Ferguson now. Uh, the Rugby League Project, we would be absolutely lost without it. So anyone listening to this who is not aware of the Rugby League Project, which is probably close to zero, make sure you're on top of it. Uh, follow Andrew's work at Rugby League Rambling, some great Rugby League history blog posts. He's got his new podcast, Fergo and the Freak. So we are big supporters of Andrew Ferguson here. So that East team in 1935 uh, won, won their games at an average score of 37 to 10. This is in the three-point try era. Yeah. Canberra 94, 31 to 13 was, was their average scoreline. enormous. Which is, yeah, yeah. And the defense as well. Yeah. So obviously they were in, in a rare class in terms of their attacking prowess. But something that really bugs me in the way that people were talking about that Canberra team, they'd be saying like, Canberra looking to go down as the, you know, Canberra have a chance of going down as the, the greatest attacking team of the modern era. It's like, what is this modern era? Yeah. Like, well, I assume they mean post-limited uh, tackle, right? Well, that's the thing. It's never been clearly defined as to, as to whether that is what they mean. It'd be, <laughs> I, I could understand it if we all said modern era begins with limited tackle football. I actually think that they, they actually mean, when the commentators say it, they actually mean entertainers, 1980. Seriously, I, th- <laughs> yeah. I think like before that was still a lot of biff and yeah. whatever. I think they mean modern eras in the 80s. Well, I Winfield wouldn't. Cup. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't say the you know the Dogs of War era was particularly entertaining. You had a <laughs> trialless grand final in 86. You know, like, but yeah, it, it really bugs me that we have to say modern era. Like, people just can't grapple with the fact that something that happened before they were born. <laughs> like exists and needs to be reckoned with. Like, I'm saying that I, I get annoyed by it because I just think of them like Dave Brown scoring nine tries against Glebe or something. It wasn't exactly the tightest comp around. 
so yeah, so it, they did have eighty point. They had an eighty point win over Canterbury, a sixty point win over Uni. That's approaching Mickey Mouse levels of football. But again, like that, it's not like there were no other good teams in the comp. I think you. I think you're looking at rose colored glasses a bit there. But I mean, you're right. One era for the whole game. Yeah. But uh, it's a bit hard to compare. But the point is, in that era, no one else. In, including other East teams of that era where they won three straight comps, no one else put up those points that they did in that one season. Yeah. So everyone else had the same chance to set those records. They did it that one year, and everyone just goes, one of the great teams of the modern era. Why can't they say <laughs> one of the, you know, the great teams since East 1935? There you go, there you go. That's a better way of saying it. But uh, at, at the end, when we, when we have done with the grand final we're going to spend a bit of time putting that camera 94 team against the east 1935 team and against some of the other great back lines in rugby league history so we can continue the debate there what's the best st george back line in your view so i, I, th- I think the the classic one is 2008 or <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so uh, six, 64 where you had um where you had langlands playing fullback you had billy smith playing in the centers because it gave you an all-international back line with the exception of George Evans at halfback. So that was probably the the best in terms of an all-international kind of thing. Mm. When you had Langlands, King and Lumsden, you had Gaznia and Billy Smith in the centres, Brian Clay at 5'8". Oh, that's pretty unbeatable. Yeah. Well, that'd be a good um, comparison. Mm. But anyway, so we'll, we'll save that till the end. And and so we'll move into the semi-final. So as I said, Canterbury minor premiers, they finished on 36 points. Norths were second on 35, then Canberra 34, Manly 33, and Brisbane scraping into the, the five on 27 points. So there was a clear top four all season. I really like watching Norths in that era. From 91 to 95, I, yeah. I really enjoy watching yeah. them. I do too. And in fact, I, I enjoyed them so much, I've devoted a whole subsection of this episode to discussing <laughs> Norths. But before we get there, I, I want to talk about that ladder. So Brisbane... A, a real struggle throughout the season, but they showed their class by scraping in to the semi-finals. Uh, so a, re- a real top four, then a drop-off. I've got to say, it's a very bad look for the ARL going into to season 95. So from 9th to 16th, all ARL teams. Balmain finished with 8 points, Gold Coast 11, East 13, West 14, Parramatta 15. I wanted to bring this up during during what the episode of the, of the breakaway, but... If there's one rugby league truth, it's current on-field form dictates everything. Yeah. Relocation, <laughs> stadium building. It, um, it doesn't matter what, what uh, indicator you want, on-field form is the indicator. But if Super League had the ARL teams, wouldn't have even got off the ground. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And, and really, I, I think it actually did really build some momentum for Super League having that. You had, there was a definite feeling when you had these super teams and these new clubs coming in that, What's the point of playing these meaningless games in in Sydney every two weeks when you've got these you know huge fixtures that you could be playing more often? Absolutely. But as I said, even though Brisbane scraped into the finals, they showed their class in the back half of the season and ended up beating Manly in that first semi final, sixteen to four. Which I, I think this game really shows the the truth of the old idea that you you got to lose one to win one kind yeah, of thing. Sure. So. Manly, even though they had a great season and were on the brink of you know a dominant era for Manly, 
in that semi-final, you get like a relatively inexperienced team against a team who'd been there and done it. And at one point in the first half, Manly were parked on Brisbane's line for you know the best part of 20 minutes, couldn't break it. Brisbane then went on to to just shut them down and, and go on and, and win the match. So Brisbane's victory in that first weekend of, of semi-final football set up one of the, the great weekends that I remember watching the semis in the the game to get into the grand final between Canberra and Canterbury, won 1918 in extra time by Canterbury. That was a killer game. Oh, so good. And and the other game was Norths beating Brisbane by a field goal as well. It's kind of a shame that wasn't the grand final. Yeah, yeah. So you'll notice I missed the first Norths-Canberra semi there. I'm going to do them as a package deal a, a bit later in the show, mm-hmm. those two Norths-Canberra semis. But so Norths beating Brisbane 15-14, courtesy of a Jason Taylor field goal. Two field goal victories on the one weekend of football. Before we discuss the the Canterbury Canberra semi, this fact of you know both games won by a field goal led to um, David Page in the Rugby League Week uh, having this to say: the field goal returned to vogue in dramatic circumstances on the big weekend of nail biters. It seemed the ten meter rule had brought about the drop goal's demise. With sides racking up big leads, the humble one pointer had become well pointless. I-, I wanted to do a bit of interrogating that to see if there was any truth to that and to look at the effect that the 10-metre rule had had on um, the way football was played. So on on the first point, no, it doesn't seem like it did. So total field goals in the year in 1992 was 41, 1993 was 47, uh, 1994, 36. So that there was a, a clear drop there, back up to 47 in 1995, but obviously it had you know, four more teams in the comp. Yeah. So some truth to it, but not necessarily... It's not a massive... It's, it's not a massive drop-off. That's something that would probably fluctuate on a year-to-year basis anyway. But what I wanted to do was look, try to get a feel for the impact that the change to the 10-metre rule had. So I went back to mid-1993 when the rule change came into force. Mid. <laughs> <laughs> so on the 1st of June, 1993, the, the rule was changed into in, you know, the international board. And reading reading the match reports from the next week, it reminded me when we did our discussion on the introduction of four-tackle football in 1967, how little actual talk there was about it as the season progressed. Looking back on it, it's insane that you can just change the entire game mid-season yeah. and no one gives a stuff. <laughs> and, and so I thought this was that exact same thing, that you know it happened and everyone just moved on with their life. But then when I looked into it, the... What I don't get is that the 10-metre rule had already been enforced as a non-official rule for a number of seasons yeah, before it. Yeah, it was, it was like 8 to 10. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was just basically officialized. And it, it was almost at, at the referee's discretion yeah. as to how they were going to call it. Yeah, so like they were saying like uh, the 5 metres is about 9 metres at the moment. Yeah, 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 and exactly. And it would all go, okay. Yeah, and then you'd get comments like, you know, oh, Harrigan, he, he refs a big 10. You know, oh, McCallum has a short ten. It's like, well, no, he refs twelve. McCallum refs eight. You know, like, as a kid, I used to literally think, like, isn't ten meters ten meters? What's going, what's going on? <laughs> I just love that he refs a big ten. <laughs> and, and the other one was, oh, mate, it was ten meters for them, three meters for us. You know, like both of those things seem to have disappeared from the, the imagine, lexicon. Imagine if a copper goes. Um, like so and so, Sergeant Sergeant O'Connor um, has got quite a big point oh five. <laughs> you know, you, you, can, you can have you can have point point one with him. Is that right? And it led to comments in in the press like this from Debbie Splane in nineteen ninety two. 
What about referee David Manson? He allowed that Harrigan tackle, made it a defensive game by ignoring the unofficial 10-meter rule, etc. It's like, just make the rule official then. Like, yeah. you know, don't bag a ref and not, like... So, like, I mean, that's why it was pushed through so yeah, easily because yeah. it, uh, it was already done. But, yeah, um, yeah just the fact that it's mid-seasons blows me away. Uh, so I was I was going back to to try to find how early I could find reference to a ten meter as opposed to a five meter. So the earliest I found was like nineteen eighty seven. So maybe maybe older listeners than us could tell us any of their experiences or their memories of it. But, I seem to remember it being like five meters ish in ninety two though. Yeah, well that's the thing. I think this not being an official rule means that it, it was just it seemed to be at, at a referee's discretion. Yeah. Yeah, but by the time it came through officially, everyone knew that the five-meter game was dead. Yeah, and it did, once it was official, it did have a marked effect on attack, on the way football was played. I can specifically remember the quick tap was in vogue. Yeah. Post-10-meter rule. Yeah. It was like, you know, um, plenty of time to attack, so, you know, mm. let's keep, the, keep, keep rolling on. Yeah. So looking at the average points a game, over those next few seasons. So in 1992, you had 32.93 points a game. 1993, 33.92, up to 40.75 in 1994, and then 42.33 in 1995. So it definitely had an effect. And now, now you know, 20 years later, we're still in that same, you know, 41 in 2016 and 2017, 40.73 in 2018. So I tell you what I equate the 10 meter rule introduction to if. Right now, they they had some sort of official clamp down on on wrestling again mm. in, the, in the ruck. Everyone would go, okay, thank God. Yeah, it's here. Uh, five years overdue. Mm. So that's why I went through so quickly. The other thing I thought about with the the ten meter rule, you were getting a lot of talk at the time of, oh, this is really going to open up the game. You're seeing attacking sides thrive while more conservative or uh, more kind of uh, textbook kind of teams struggle. Does it seem like the defense always catches up? Like anytime always. there's an attacking innovation or it looks like we're getting a more freewheeling style. <laughs> Absolutely. And then it's always the same thing. We need to bring back fatigue for the little man. <laughs> so, so yeah, just just interesting that, the, the 10 meter all and looking at let it, at its impact. Um, you're so right though. Like, And then we'll, we'll get into it in Super League, how far it went the other way. Yeah. <laughs> But so Canterbury Canberra, uh, extra time win to Canterbury, nineteen eighteen. I, I remember watching this game so clearly. I'm I'm pretty sure it was um Daryl Halligan at the end who climbed into the stands to see his family, but I remember that. I hated Canterbury, so I hated seeing that and I was devastated that Canberra lost. Like this was such a good game of footy. And it made me think like I I think in rugby league, the way we talk about great games, if it's not a grand final or an origin game or it, the very occasional test, it just kind of seems to get forgotten in the memory. There's so many great semifinals. Yeah. That you're right. It's just been like whitewashed. And I feel like in, in American sports, you have all these moments that are like mythical moments in like the NFL particularly, you'll hear about the immaculate reception, the catch, all these moments. And so few of them actually occurred in the Super Bowl. Yeah. They all were, were in some conference final or, you know, some earlier game. I want to say in rugby league, making the semifinals isn't that prestigious. Mm. Like making the eight, you know, it's good, you know, whatever. But if you don't make the grand final, it's like, yeah, what a waste. But uh, yeah, so th- this game was such a good game. So Canterbury were ahead uh, for most of the way, and then 
David Wesley actually scored the the equalizing try with you know 30 seconds left or whatever to take to extra time I, I mean after this one I wasn't happy about it being a Raiders fan but I appreciated the game obviously but I, I was really worried going into the grand final because of this game really because I camera were like my second team like growing up like my dad was from Queanbeyan so they're always like the family second team mm. so in that era I was always like you know behind camera to win the grand final if they were contending and I remember Grand Final Day just being so confident that Canberra was going to win. I remember going, Lomax is out, Jesus, <laughs> we lost in the semi, what's going on? Uh, and a lot of talk in the wake of Canberra's eventual Grand Final win that this game, this semi-final, was Cam- Canterbury's Grand Final. It was a case of having extra gears to go to. Yeah, yeah. Canterbury got up in part by some some inspirational leadership from Terry Lamb, gave a rousing halftime speech, apparently, which which got everyone fired up. <laughs> Uh, ended a nine-match winning streak for Canberra, so they looked unstoppable heading into the finals, and this really kind of gave those question marks that you spoke of then. Uh, the old rebelly adage is, you know, is it better to have an easy runner or, or a few tough ones, you know? Yeah, which can be proven on both sides. Like, <laughs> because it's absolute rubbish. Yeah. It's funny, I, I just I watched the game one of the, the NBA finals the other day, and, and in the aftermath of the Warriors losing, Steve Kerr was interviewed about, like, whether the the extra break hurt the Warriors, <laughs> and he he just said, "Doesn't matter if, if we'd have won, everyone would be saying that the break kept us fresh." Doesn't matter, you know. So. <laughs> it, it goes across sports that yeah. ridiculous average. <laughs> so as I said, so Canterbury the first team into the grand final. Norse would have a rematch with Canberra, who beat them in that first semi final. Uh, and you you touched on it. This was a really great era for Norths. I've I really like this Norths team. And it's not something I really realized at the time, but now when I was putting this together, looking back, I was stunned by how much I liked this North team. They built a really, really great football team. Yeah. From like 1991 onwards. Which is a credit to them because of their position in the Sydney Rugby League landscape. So they made their last grand final in 1943. Since then, up up until 1994... They'd made the semis eight times in the 50 years since that grand final appearance. So they finished third in both 1991 and 1982. But since they finished second in 1965, they finished no higher than sixth in any other year in in that time period. It used to annoy me when the commentators were always bringing that up. They haven't won a grand final. Like, Give them a break. <laughs> but so many times you see, like, it, it'll be like an article in 1990 and it'll, it'll be like, no one's kicking sand in the faces of Norths anymore. Like, this is a different <laughs> Norths team. <laughs> it's such a shame for them because if it wasn't for the Canberra juggernaut green machine, they would have been in the GF, is the thing. Yeah, and I, I always think, so 96... Uh, St. George, my beloved St. George, beat them in the preliminary final uh, and went on to lose to Manly. Like, I, I wish I could give them that losing grand final appearance, you know? <laughs> like, like it wouldn't really mean anything to St. George fans and it would mean so much to Norse if they could say they lost another grand final. In terms of uh, rugby league clubs and their extracurricular businesses, I think Norse should have been in the bridesmaids business. <laughs> <laughs> Selling dresses or something. So I had had a you know bit of a look into the the history of Norths and and their you know rise in the early nineties, uh, and I, I wanted to turn to friend of the show Noel Kelly, who coached them for a time in the nineteen seventies, and I think Kelly's observations of the Norths mindset really like hold true 
throughout much of their history. And I, I hope Norse fans don't think of this as just us shitting on Norths because th- that's not what we're here to do. So Noel Kelly said that, I was to stay for four more seasons that, at that most friendly of clubs. And right there in those words is North Sydney's problem over the years. I've got to say that I've never met better blokes in my life than I met at North Sydney. But the truth of football is that it's not always the real good blokes who make real good footballers. There you go. And then uh, he said, The worst thing about the Bears was their ready acceptance of defeat. We might play okay and not lose by much. And I'd walk into the room and there'd be officials with their arms draped around players' shoulders. <laughs> Um, a great book uh, by Andrew Moore, the you know um, the club history of Norse uh, called the Mighty Bears. It had that same kind of acceptance of like defeat and all right, we're never going to win it, but you know we we can be proud that we we made the semis. It's odd, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one of my favourite quotes was talking about talking about their rise in 1990, where they looked good for much of the season, ultimately missed the finals. But uh, Andrew Moore said this. As it happens, the Bears did not make the semi-finals that year, though the team only fell out of contention three weeks before the conclusion of the season. <laughs> uh, so a, a lot of their emergence in the nineties was was down to their chairman David Hill, who you know really went a long way towards setting him on this path of success in the nineties. So much, especially at the lower end of the clubs, depends on the top end of yeah. the administration. Yeah, just getting stuff done properly. Yeah. Uh, he he also waged a one man war against the New South Wales Rugby League for their cigarette stance, which led to the the Bears lost their major sponsor, New South Wales Health Department, going into nineteen ninety four because of their issues with the the New South Wales Rugby League. Like, what does that say about your, like, you? Know, <laughs> we've lost the Department of Health. <laughs> What were they doing sponsoring rugby league in the first place? <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? So North North started nineteen ninety four on a real hot streak. Um, w- went into it as as the April premiers. Uh, again in rugby league week, David Page said this: North Sydney have sealed their first premiership since nineteen ninety two. Too early to start predicting what will happen in September, perhaps, but history leans heavily in favour of that outcome. Penrith opened their nineteen ninety one campaign with seven straight wins late North this season and went on to win their first premiership. Uh, went on to list a, a series of, of stats that indicated why Norths were specials to go on and, and win the whole thing, which they, they failed to do, of course, but very impressive early in the year. Also impressive early in the year was St. George. When when they met at the, the end of April at Cogra Oval, it was you know a top-of-the-table clash. Friday night, a game I was at and remember so clearly, Norths ended up winning at 9-2, and it's one of those games like origin intensity where you mm. like feel the hits from the sideline. I- I'm not good at remembering like score lines of individual games. Like It could be a game last week, and I'd struggle to tell you what the score is, but I remember this game so clearly. Well, it's an and, odd score. Yeah, it, it is an odd score. And both teams went on a sustained losing run after this match, so I think it really took it out of both teams. Right. But Norths went on to recover St. George went on to lose 61-0 to Manly, um, among other lowlights. <laughs> that squad, the, the Bears squad of that year, so they had uh, Taylor come in, yeah. replace Halligan. So they had the two best goal kickers year after year. Yeah. That was in an era when like other teams had 40 to 50% goal kickers, and it was acceptable. Mm, yeah. And they had 70 to 80%. Yeah. So it was a huge advantage. Yeah, so I want to talk about that squad, because as I said, I, I really like so much of that squad. Back row to die for. Yeah, yeah. Let, you, you mentioned Jason Taylor. Let, let's start with him. Among the most maligned players of the last 
20 or 30 years. And you know, from our old show, or the Week to Week show, I was always trying to defend him when he was a Tigers coach because I think he gets a bad rap because of his like appearance. I was going to say, like my theory on Jason Taylor is he has the male equivalent of a resting bitch face. There it is. Like he just... He just looks really unlikable. <laughs> and I, I think he's a nice bloke from all reports. So we're, we're death riding this bloke's career for no reason, <laughs> rugby league fans. But so I, because I knew we were going to be talking about Norse, so I, I sent word out to the, the biggest Norse fan that we know among our listener base, at PaulMac underscore 78 on Twitter. Good rugby league follow. Um, I highly recommend him. Get on top of that. But so I, I wanted to get his thoughts on that 94 team any memories he had or, you know, whatever he might have to say. And and one of the first things he said was that I never really believed in Jason Taylor. I already knew at 16 you needed a great halfback and not a good halfback to win a comp. I think that's quite astute, but uh, he wasn't a great halfback. He was a very good halfback. I was going to say, like, he, he, was, he was better than a good halfback. I thought he was a very good halfback. Definitely rep level second tier yep. worthy. Yeah, uh, but not a winner. No, but I mean, it was more like he didn't have the physical attributes of some of the guys, and mm. probably the killer instinct. Yeah, playing in a dinner suit, that sort of thing. Uh, great organizer though. Mm. Which, which so many halfbacks in this day and age haven't even got organizational. No, skills. No, exactly. So, yeah, like, it's a premium. Yeah, but that that concept of being a winner or not a winner, it's a very you know, it lacks any nuance. It's not really descriptive of what actually happens, See, but I, there's something to it. There's definitely something to it, and I'm reluctant to comment on it because i'm a loser <laughs> it's like uh so i can identify it because i haven't i haven't been able to achieve it it's just it's it's an aura almost yeah it's like michael jordan winner mm. ben hunt inverse winner yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's fun, like i i think when you get burnt by a player a couple of times you you fear them and, and i definitely going for st george in the 90s i feared jason taylor like he was a very good player yeah, I always liked the good kicking game and a good passing game. That's mm. why I really liked him. But look at a guy like Ricky Stewart, winner. Yeah. Just pure, I don't know what the word is, mongrel. Yeah. Just mongrel inside the brain. Uh, that's, why I said, um, that's why I think Jason Taylor is a good bloke. He hasn't got that mongrel. Mm. But back to, back, back to Paul's point about you need a great halfback to win the comp. I think much lesser halfbacks than Jason Taylor have won multiple comps. Well, you know? it's not a great halfback; it's a great half, a great yeah. leader, yeah. organizer. Mm. So, if it's the sixth, if it's Bar doing the organizing, that's your halfback. Well, let's talk about the six. Greg Florimo. To me, like Greg Florimo and Jason Taylor, I could have easily seen that duo winning a comp. That was Florimo's peak year. Yeah, ninety four was his ultimate peak. Yeah, made made the Kangaroo Tour that year. Year yeah. uh, still wasn't getting picked for Origin. I remember in the playground at school. Uh, Mr. Gibbs, who won later fame by sticking a pencil up Robert O'Dowd's nose uh, in geography. Uh, but Mr. Gibbs had had the paper. He was like looking at the New South Wales team list and he saw Brad Fittler's name and he said, Hitler, why are they picking him? Florimo's better than him. Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> I remember even the time going like, I don't know, I think Fittler's pretty good. But I think Florimo wouldn't have been out of place. He was considered, I remember my cousin describing him as an eager beaver. Right, so you had this sort of like reputation as he's overachieving out of his talent or something, but he wasn't really. No, he was a really bloody good player. Yeah, and he he rose to any level. Like he was never out of place. Like you know, he he played tests on that '94 Kangaroo Tour and you know slotted him perfectly. And it also developed as a as a utility there. He mm. wasn't a utility before that. But off the bench for the 
Kangaroos, it was great. Well, let's talk about his utility value in latter years. Uh, in his, I think one of my favorite running jokes we have on this show is Flo's undying efforts to revive the Bears, which is admirable and hilarious. It, it's so admirable. Like I, I was, I've recently been dealing with a guy who's doing some work in the North Sydney archives, which are a house in a very poor state, and he he comes up to me and goes. I told Greg Florimo he was disgusted. <laughs> but I like to think of Flo like getting on the floor and going, mate, we need some Mylar sheets. We need some archive boxes. I um, picture Florimo like sort of hibernating and then when there's ever a chance of like a license coming up, he sits up like the undertaker. <laughs> but I, I can see why he would be such a hero to Norse fans. Like the, the you know, the actual hometown kid like grew up in Willoughby or wherever but how good is it having an actual one club player yeah 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 and I, I think I've s- I said this before like as a fan what you want is to know that a player on your team cares about your club as much as you do yeah and in that case more yeah yeah but but it is so relatively rare especially you know over the last 20 or 30 years yeah but I, I love Greg Florimo this is sort of like the post Peter Jackson era mm. where he was the focal point of the attack. Yeah. And a bit more serious, I'd say, was the vibe of that team. Mm. And you had, a, you know, blokes like Mario Fennick who knew it was his last chance to... Well, you to, want to talk about winners. Yeah. He mightn't have won much, but he, he had the winner's mentality. Mm. Yeah. 120%. Yeah, yeah. And was was really kind of pulling them along as they got into those semis. Uh, but, but that pack in itself, like, you know, he had Dave Fairley winning the Rothmans that year. Uh, announcing himself as one of the best second rows in the game. Uh, Billy Moore and Gary Larson both at their absolute peak. Uh, you, you also had the the emergence of Matt Sears, who won the the Rookie of the Year that year, or Norwich Rising Star, as it was at the time. Well, I'll tell you what, he was my second favourite player after that 94 season. If you want to talk about a meteoric rise and fall, like it, it never got as good for him as it was in 94. I, um, the only person I ever compared to his running... Uh, and tackle break style for me with Brian Carney at his peak. Mm. Both built close to the ground, really fast across the ground, but strong and bumping off guys. Yeah. Jeezy was a good player in that series. So you could really see a sense that they had the team. And if not this year, they had the team that was going to be competing and, you know, a real shot at winning it for the next several years. I want to, want to talk to you about Peter Louie, who won coach of the year that year. Love Peter Louie. Things were going so good that he quit his job as uh, greenskeeper at Woi Woi Bowling Club <laughs> to coach the Bears full-time. He had that hair with the brill cream hair that looked like you know, an RSL board member. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was 49 in 1994. At that point, the oldest coach in first grade? I thought he was 60 then. Yeah. <laughs> but that's crazy to me. 49 is the oldest coach in yeah, the game. crazy. Um, getting coach of the year that was up there with Phil Economides getting it like I really like the guy that had a, like a bad squad getting it or a yeah. bad club and especially when you had the next year you know the, the loyalty payments to Bozo and Gus and Mal really like Peter Louie just kind of like get got left out of any discussion of, of the, the best coaches in the game but yeah. I mean he did a lot with that team so to those semi-finals so Canberra won the first one 26 to 12 in a game that was closer than that scoreline indicates that game was, of course, the the famous moment of Matt Sears running down Brett Mullins. Yeah. Uh, so Ray Warren's commentary of that moment: "That's it. That is it. They couldn't possibly catch Mullins," which, of course, Matt Sears went on to do. But watching 
that highlight recently. Like Matt Sears was so close to him when, when Rab said that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like way premature. Bloody quick though. Yeah. Uh, so apparently Brett Mullins wasn't quite at full fitness. I, I think you, you can see it when when he made the break. I, I think a few weeks earlier he would have like you know made it easy. Yeah. But a great iconic moment for Matt Sears. Yeah. But in the end, it probably would have been better off if he let Mullins score because shortly after uh, Chris Caruana was sin binned for a professional foul, Cameron went on to score three tries while he was sin binned, and you know put the game out of reach. I seem to remember Chris Caruana always being in the sim bin. <laughs> I think you're right. Because remember in that, that era, you'd, you'd get the, the paper on the Sunday or whatever and, and look and they'd show you the stats and, and sin bin was one of the stats. <laughs> yeah. I, I seem to remember seeing Chris Caruana. <laughs> Leading the league in sin bin. <laughs> so they beat, they beat Brisbane, went on to, to face Canberra for the right to make it to the grand final. Which I, I was at that game, that second semi final. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so funny. I said I don't really remember individual games that well, but like I still remember where I was sitting and, and the buzz, and it was such another like really bruising physical game that um, you know Canberra won at twenty two to nine, but again it was a, a very tight game, uh, and you know a, a really entertaining game as well. So John Lomax gets sent off, and North soon re- with a real shot from there and then minutes later Gary Larson goes off as well the first time in his career in their win against Brisbane just reading this I, I, I'll, I'll just read this out one player who needed his confidence buoyed before the game was state of origin back rower Gary Larson Larson was down on himself following the loss to Canberra and was desperate to put his best foot forward against the Broncos I knew I had to get involved early I didn't against Canberra and the game just passed me by I wonder if that was in his head going into that second semi-final Going like I've I've got to get involved here and maybe oh, like certainly and brain explosions yeah and and it, it, going back to Andrew Moore's book he called Larson's spear tackle a so-called spear tackle <laughs> and, and watching watching the, the replay of that it's it's so called a spear tackle because of the fact that he picked him up in spear like fashion <laughs> and drove him into the ground he's a good rule of thumb if anyone's got the word spear tackle near your tackle it's not a good tackle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that would that, that those two send offs uh, w- were a real turning point in that game. One reason is that Billy Moore didn't go off when he was hit by Lomax, uh, but had to go off at a later state, and because he didn't go off instantly, it cost them uh, an interchange. Right, and so at one stage late in the match, North did really well because half the team was like busted. They were playing with eleven men at one point because they'd run out of interchanges. So winger David Hall went off at one point um, because he was injured, and former skipper Tony Ray, in a you know great clubman kind of show, like ran into the tunnel and basically said, "You got to get back out there," uh, which he did. So as I said, Norths did go down twenty-two to nine, but you know won themselves all the admirers in the game with their performance and their season, and. It's easy to say that they, they never win anything, but who's going to beat that squad? Yeah, yeah. It's like the Golden State Warriors and NBA. It's mm. the last five years. It's like if you can beat them, it's a miracle almost. So there was a real feeling with that North team that they'd announced themselves and they were now one, genuinely one of the competition heavyweights. Which I mean, for the next few years, they they did very well, but always just lacked that. Well, they were shouldering quite a bit of the, the uh, ARL comp yeah, yeah. on their shoulders. So. Yeah, and as we'll see, once we do get into 
into the Super League season proper, they played a surprising, surprisingly influential role in the, the Super League war, given their, their place in the game, you know, historically and the way they were so easily kind of tossed aside as, as it reached its conclusion. Probably that tossing aside after the ill-fated Northern Eagles venture, which I had some personal experiences with, uh, that's probably left the most bitterness out of the entire war. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Seriously. And it's it's funny that I find North Sydney fans are probably, like, anecdotally, this, this is a very small sample size, but they seem the least likely to boycott the game forever. They've either found a new club or they're, you know, pushing North's barrel and, you know, still holding out hope. Well, I've got different experience. Every, oh, really? I live on the North side. Yeah, yeah. Every, everyone, every old bloke I meet that used to be a North Sydney fan, a good proportion of, like, and watched the games in Super League. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll defer to your experience <laughs> living in, in that area. But, I, you know, it just sounds to me like all the, the Balmain and, and West fans are like, no, nah, I'm done. You know, it's like, you've got kind of a team still. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll, I'll leave the, the last word to, to Phil Gould in 1996 in that preliminary final against St. George when it was clear St. George were going to win and go on to the grand final. Phil Gould said, don't worry, Bears fans, there's better days ahead. <laughs> uh, so that's our show this week. We'll be back next week uh, to go through the grand final in full. As always, uh, we'd love to hear any feedback. Send us an email to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. I'm actually getting really addicted to getting those listener stories about them, their memories of Super League, what they were doing at the some time. Great ones come through. Some really good ones. So so please, if you've got the time, uh, let us know your thoughts. It, 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 I've found that I'll, it seems that the majority of our listeners are our age plus or minus a few years, but I'm getting some really good emails from people who are too young to remember Super League, and I'm loving getting that perspective. And Growing up in the... In the only NRL era, it must be crazy. Mm. It's, it's been quite smooth sailing. Yeah. Apart from the scandals, but I mean, <laughs> the, the actual game yeah. has been smooth. Yeah. So, yeah, as I said, we'd, we'd really love to get some more of that feedback. So, do send us an email in. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. And if you do have the time uh, and can give us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be a, a really big help. We're loving uh, the people who have been spreading the word for us. And, and this is one of the best ways you can do that. So we'll be back next week with the conclusion of our 1994 special. Uh, So we'll speak to you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.